Section 29 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Blakely. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Saracens in Spain. Battle of the Guadalete, A.D. 711. Ahmed ibn Muhammad al-Makari. When assailed by the Saracen power, the Gothic kingdom in Spain, which had endured for three centuries, had long been suffering a decline. Political disorders and social demoralization had made its conditions such as might well invite the Muslim armies, flushed with victories on the African side, to cross the narrow strait of Gibraltar for new conquests. The final subjection of North Africa had been accomplished by the Arab general, Musa ibn Nusayr, only the fortress of Ceuta on the shore of the strait still remaining in possession of the Goths. The Saracens knew that a fresh revolution in Spain had placed on the throne Roderick, who proved to be the last of the Gothic kings. At Ceuta, the commandant, Count Ilian, Julian, when he was attacked, made a feeble defense, virtually betraying the post into the hands of the Muslims. The reason, according to some authorities, for the defection of Ilion was his desire to avenge an injury inflicted upon him by Roderick, who is said to have dishonored Ilion's daughter, the Lady Florinda. Others attribute the treason of Ilion to his real loyalty to the rivals of Roderick, the latter being regarded by him as a usurper. It is recorded that Ilion proposed to Musa the conquest of Andalusia, whose wealth and productiveness and other natural attractions he glowingly described. The people, Ilion declared, were enervated by reason of prolonged peace, and were destitute of arms. He was induced entirely to desert the Gothic cause, and joined the Muslims, and made a successful incursion into the country of his former friends, returning to Africa loaded with spoil. From this time Ilion served under the Muslim standard. Another invasion was made by the Saracens with like results, and then Musa, having received authority from the Caliph, prepared to enter upon the conquest of Spain. The events which followed were not only of great moment in the affairs of that country, but foreshadowed others which seemed to involve the fate of Europe and of Christendom in the outcome of the Mahometan advance. Musa strengthened himself in his intention of invading Andalusia. To this effect, he called a free slave of his, to whom he had on different occasions entrusted important commands in his armies, and whose name was Tarek ibn Zayed ibn Abdillah, a native of Hamdan in Persia, although some pretend that he was not a freedman of Musa ibn Nasser, but a freed-born man of the tribe of Sadf, while others make him a Mali of Lam. It is even asserted that some of his posterity, who lived in Andalusia, rejected with indignation the supposition of their ancestor having ever been a liberated slave of Musa ibn Nasser. Some authors, and they are the greatest number, say that he was a Berber, to this Tarek, therefore, the Arabian governor of Africa committed the important trust of conquering the kingdom of Andalusia, for which end he gave him the command of an army of seven thousand men, chiefly Berbers and slaves, very few only being genuine Arabs. To accompany and guide Tarek on this expedition, Musa sent Ilion, who provided four vessels from the ports under his command, the only places on the coast where vessels were at the time built. Everything being got ready, a division of the army crossed that arm of the sea which divides Andalusia from Africa, 
and landed with Tarek at the foot of the mountain, which afterward received his name, on a Saturday in the month of Shaban, of the year of the Hajira, 92, July, 711, answering to the month of Agusht, August, and the four vessels were sent back, and crossed and recrossed until the rest of Tarek's men were safely put on shore. It is otherwise said that Tarek landed on the 24th of Rajab, June 19th, A.D. 711, in the same year. Another account makes the number of men embarked on this occasion amount to 12,000, all but 16, a number consisting almost entirely of Berbers, there being but few Arabs among them, but the same writer agrees that Ilion transported this force at various times to the coast of Andalusia in merchant vessels, whence collected it is not known, and that Tarek was the last man on board. Various historians have recorded two circumstances concerning Tarek's passage and his landing on the coast of Andalusia, which we consider worthy of being transcribed. They say that while he was sailing across that arm of the sea which separates Africa from Andalusia, he saw in a dream the prophet Mahomet, surrounded by Arabs of the Muhajirm and Ansar, who with unsheathed swords and bended bows stood close by him, and that he had heard the prophet say, Take courage, O Tarek! and accomplish what thou art destined to perform. And that having looked round him, he saw the messenger of God, who with his companions was entering Andalusia. Tarek then awoke from his sleep, and delighted with this good omen, hastened to communicate the miraculous circumstance to his followers, who were much pleased and strengthened. Tarek himself was so much struck by the apparition, that from that moment he never doubted of victory. The same writers have preserved another anecdote, which sufficiently proves the mediation of the Almighty in permitting that the conquest of Andalusia should be achieved by Tarek. Directly after his landing on the rock, Musa's freedman brought his forces upon the plain, and began to overrun and lay waste the neighboring country. While he was thus employed, an old woman from Algeciras presented herself to him, and among other things told him what follows. Thou must know, O stranger, that I had once a husband, who had the knowledge of future events, and I have repeatedly heard him say to the people of this country that a foreign general would come to this island and subject it to his arms. He described him to me as a man of prominent forehead, and such I see as thine. He told me also that the individual designated by the prophecy would have a black mole covered with hair on his left shoulder. Now, if thou hast such a mark on thy body, thou art undoubtedly the person intended." When Tarek heard the old woman's reasoning, he immediately laid his shoulder bare, and the mark being found as predicted upon the left one, both he and his companions were filled with delight at the good omen. Ibn Hayyan's account does not materially differ from those of the historians from whom we have quoted. He agrees in saying that Ilian, lord of Ceuta, incited Musa ibn Nusayr to make the conquest of Andalusia, and that this he did out of revenge and moved by the personal enmity and hatred he had conceived against Roderick. He makes Tarek's army amount only to seven thousand, mostly Berbers, which he says crossed in four vessels provided by Ilion. According to his account, Tarek landed on Saturday, in the month of Shaban, of the year of ninety-two, and the vessels that brought him and his men on shore were immediately sent back to Africa, and never ceased going backward and forward until the whole of the army was safely landed on the shores of Andalusia. On the other side, Ibn Khaldun reckons the army under the orders of Tarek at three hundred Arabs and ten thousand Berbers. He says that before starting on his expedition, Tarek divided his army into two corps, he himself taking the command of one, and placing the other under the immediate orders of Tarif an Najai. Tarek with his men landed at the foot of the rock now called Jabalu el-Fatah, 
the mountain of the entrance and which then received his name and was called jebel tarek the mountain of tarek while his companion tarif landed on the island afterward called after him jazira tarif the island of tarif in order to provide for the security of their respective armies both generals selected soon after their landing a good encampment which they surrounded with walls and trenches for no sooner had the news of their landing spread than the armies of the goths began to march against them from all quarters no sooner did tarik set his foot in andalusia than he was attacked by a goth named tudmir theodomir whom roderick had entrusted the defence of that frontier theodomir who is the same general who afterward gave his name to a province of andalusia called belad tudmir the country of theodomir having tried although in vain to stop the impetuous career of tarik's men dispatched immediately a messenger to his master apprising him how tarik and his followers had landed in andalusia he also wrote him a letter thus conceived this our land has been invaded by people whose name country and origin are unknown to me i cannot even tell whence they came whether they fell from the skies or sprang from the earth when this news reached roderick who was then in the country of the bashkins basques making war in the territory of banabalona pamplona where serious disturbances had occurred he guessed directly that the blow came from ilion sensible however of the importance of this attack made upon his dominions he left what he had in hand and moving toward the south with the whole of his powerful army arrived in cordova which is placed in the centre of andalusia there he took up his abode in the royal castle which the arabs called after him roderick's castle in this palace roderick took up his residence for a few days to await the arrival of numerous troops which he had summoned from the different provinces of his kingdom they say that while he was staying in cordova he wrote to the sons of the witiza to come and join him against the common enemy for although it is true that roderick had usurped the throne of their father and persecuted the sons yet he had spared their lives since these two sons of witiza are the same who when tarik attacked the forces of king roderick on the plains of guadalete near the sea turned back and deserted their ranks owing to a promise made them by tarik to restore them to the throne of their father if they helped him against roderick however when roderick arrived in cordova the sons of witiza were busily engaged in some distant province collecting troops to march against the invaders and he wrote to them to come and join him with their forces in order to march against the arabs and cautioning them against the inconvenience and danger of private feuds at that moment engaged them to join him and attack the arabs in one mass the sons of witiza readily agreed to roderick's proposition and collecting all their forces came to meet him and encamped not far from the village of shikanda on the opposite side of the river and on the south of the palace of cordova there they remained for some time not daring to enter the capital or to trust roderick until at last having ascertained the truth of the preparations and seeing the army march out of the city and him with it they entered cordova united their forces to his and marched with him against the enemy although as will be seen presently they were already planning the treachery which they afterward committed others say the sons of witiza did not obey the summons sent them by the usurper roderick on the contrary that they joined tarik with all their forces when tarik received the news of the approach of roderick's army which is said to have amounted to nearly one hundred thousand men provided with all kinds of weapons and military stores he wrote to musa for assistance saying that he had taken algeciras a port of andalusia thus becoming by its possession the master of the passage into that country that he had subdued its districts as far as the bay 
but that roderick was now advancing against him with a force which it was not in his power to resist except it was god almighty's will that it should be so musa who since tarik's departure for this expedition had been employed in building ships and had by this time collected a great many sent by them a reinforcement of five thousand moslems which added to the seven thousand of the first expedition made the whole forces amount to twelve thousand men eager for plunder and anxious for battle ilion was also sent with his army and the people of his states to accompany this expedition and to guide it through the passes in the country and gather intelligence for them in the meanwhile roderick was drawing nearer to the moslems with all the forces of the barbarians their lords their knights and their bishops but the hearts of the great people of the kingdom being against him they used to see each other frequently and in their private conversations they uttered their sentiments about roderick in the following manner this wretch has by force taken possession of the throne to which he is not justly entitled for not only does he not belong to the royal family but he was once one of our meanest menials we do not know how far he may carry his wicked intentions against us there is no doubt but that tarik's followers do not intend to settle in this country their only wish is to fill their hands with spoil and then return let us then as soon as the battle is engaged give way and leave the usurper alone to fight the strangers who will soon deliver us from him and when they shall be gone we can place on the throne him who most deserves it in these sentiments all agreed and it was decided that the proposed plan should be put into execution the two sons of witiza whom roderick had appointed to the command of the right and left wings of his army being at the head of the conspiracy in hope of gaining the throne of their father when the armies drew nearer to each other the princes began to spin the web of their treason and for this purpose a messenger was sent by them to tarik informing him how roderick who had been a mere menial and servant to their father had after his death usurped the throne that the princes had by no means relinquished their rights and that they implored protection and security for themselves they offered to desert and pass over to tarik with the troops under their command on condition that the arab general would after subduing the whole of andalusia secure to them all their father's possessions amounting to three thousand valuable and chosen farms the same that received after this the name of safiya el maluk the royal portion this offer tarik accepted and having agreed to the conditions on the next day the sons of Watiza deserted the ranks of the gothic army in the midst of battle and passed over to tarik this being no doubt one of the principal causes of the conquest roderick arrived on the banks of the guadalete with a formidable army which most historians compute at one hundred thousand cavalry although ibn khaldun makes it amount to forty thousand men only roderick brought all his treasures and military stores in carts he himself came in a litter placed between two mules having over his head an awning richly set with pearls rubies and emeralds on the approach of this formidable host the moslems did not lose courage but prepared to meet their adversary tarik assembled his men comforted them by his words and after rendering the due praises to the almighty god and returning thanks for what had already been accomplished proceeded to implore his mighty help for the future he then encouraged the moslems and kindled their enthusiasm with the following address whither can you fly the enemy is in your front the sea at your back by allah there is no salvation for you but in your courage and perseverance consider your situation here you are on this island like so many orphans cast upon the world you will soon be met by a powerful enemy surrounding you on all sides like the infuriated billows of a tempestuous sea and sending against you his countless warriors drowned in steel and provided with every store and description of arms what can you oppose to them 
you have no other weapons than your swords, no provisions but those that you may snatch from the hands of your enemies. You must therefore attack them immediately, or otherwise your wants will increase. The gales of victory may no longer blow in your favor, and perchance the fear that lurks in the hearts of your enemies may be changed into indomitable courage. Banish all fear from your hearts, trust that victory shall be ours, and that the barbarian king will not be able to withstand the shock of our arms. Here he comes to make us the master of his cities and castles, and to deliver into our hands his countless treasures. And if you only seize the opportunity now presented, it may perhaps be the means of your becoming the owners of them, besides saving yourselves from certain death. Do not think that I impose upon you a task from which I shrink myself, or that I try to conceal from you the dangers attending this our expedition. No, you have certainly a great deal to encounter, but know that if you only suffer for a while, you will reap in the end an abundant harvest of pleasures and enjoyments. And do not imagine that while I speak to you, I mean not to act as I speak, for as my interest in this affair is greater, so will my behavior on this occasion surpass yours." You must have heard numerous accounts of this island. You must know how the Grecian maidens, as handsome as Hori's, their necks glittering with innumerable pearls and jewels, their bodies clothed with tunics of costly silk, sprinkled with gold, are waiting your arrival, reclining on soft couches in the sumptuous palaces of crowned lords and princes. You know well that the caliph Abdu al-Malek ibn al-Walid has chosen you, like so many heroes, from among the brave. You know that the great lords of this island are willing to make you their sons and brethren by marriage, if you only rush on like so many brave men to the fight, and behave like true champions and valiant knights. You know that the recompenses of God await you if you are prepared to uphold his words, and proclaim his religion in this island, and lastly, that all the spoil shall be yours, and of such Muslims as may be with you. Bear in mind that God Almighty will select, according to this promise, those that distinguish themselves most among you and grant them due reward, both in this world and in the future. And know likewise that I shall be the first to set you the example, and to put in practice what I recommend you to do. For it is my intention, on the meeting of the two hosts, to attack the Christian tyrant Roderick, and kill him with my own hand if God be pleased. When you see me bearing against him, charge along with me. If I kill him, the victory is ours. If I am killed before I reach him, do not trouble yourselves about me, but fight as if I were still alive and among you, and follow up my purpose, for the moment they see their king fall, these barbarians are sure to disperse. If, however, I should be killed after inflicting death upon their king, appoint a man from among you who unites both courage and experience, and may command you in this emergency, and follow up the success. If you attend to my instructions, we are sure of the victory. When Tarek had thus addressed his soldiers, and exhorted them to fight with courage, and to face the dangers of war with a stout heart, when he had thus recommended them to make a simultaneous attack upon Roderick's men, and promised them abundant reward if they routed their enemies. Their countenances were suddenly expanded with joy, their hopes were strengthened, the gales of victory began to blow on their side, and they all unanimously answered him. We are ready to follow thee, O Tarek. We shall all, to one man, stand by thee and fight for thee. Nor could we avoid it, were we otherwise disposed. Victory is our only hope of salvation." After this, Tarek mounted his horse, and his men did the same, and they all passed that night in constant watch for fear of the enemy. On the following morning, when day dawned, both armies prepared for battle. Each general formed his cavalry and his infantry, and the signal being given, the armies met with a shock, similar to that of two mountains dashing against each other. 
King Roderick came, born on a throne, and having over his head an awning of variegated silk to guard him from the rays of the sun, surrounded by warriors cased in bright steel, with fluttering pennons and a profusion of banners and standards. Tarek's men were differently arrayed. Their breasts were covered with male armor, they wore white turbans on their heads, the Arabian bow slung across their backs, their swords suspended in their girdles, and their long spears firmly grasped in their hands. They say that when the two armies were advancing upon each other, and the eyes of Roderick fell upon the men in the first ranks, he was horror-stricken, and was heard to exclaim, By the faith of the Messiah, these are the very men I saw painted on the scroll found in the mansion of science at Toledo. And from that moment fear entered his heart, and when Tarek perceived Roderick, he said to his followers, This is the king of the Christians, and he charged with his men, the warriors who surrounded Roderick being on all sides scattered and dispersed, seeing which... Tarek plunged into the ranks of the enemy until he reached the king, and wounded him with his sword on the head, and killed him on his throne. And when Roderick's men saw their king fall, and his bodyguard dispersed, the rout became general, and victory remained with the Muslims. The rout of the Christians was complete, for instead of rallying on one spot, they fled in all directions, and their panic being communicated to their countrymen, cities opened their gates and castles surrendered without resistance. The preceding account we have borrowed from a writer of great note, but we deem it necessary to warn the readers that the assertion that Roderick died by the hands of Tarek has been contradicted by several historians, since his body, although diligently sought on the field of battle, could nowhere be found. We shall proceed to recount in detail that memorable battle, when Almighty God was pleased to put King Roderick's army to flight and grant the Muslims a most complete victory. Several authors who have described at large this famous engagement state that Tarek encamped near Roderick, toward the middle of the month of Ramadan, the year 92, September A.D. 711, and although there is some difference as to the dates, all agree that the battle was fought on the banks of the Guadalete. They say also that while both armies were encamped in front of each other, the barbarian king, wishing to ascertain the exact amount of Tarek's forces, sent one of his men, whose valor and strength he knew, and in whose fidelity he placed unbounded confidence, with instructions to penetrate into Tarek's camp, and bring him an account of their number, arms, accoutrement, and vessels. The Christian proceeded to execute his commission, and reached a small elevation whence he had a commanding view of the whole camp. However, he had not remained long in his place of observation before he was discovered by some Muslims who pursued him. But the Christian fled before them, and escaped through the swiftness of his horse. Arrived at the Christian camp, he addressed Roderick in the following words. These people, O king, are the same that thou sawest painted on the scroll of the enchanted palace. Beware of them, for the greatest part of them have bound themselves by oath to reach thee or die in the attempt. They have set fire to their vessels to destroy their last hope of escape. They are encamped along the seashore, determined to die or to vanquish, for they know well that there is not in this country a place whither they can fly. On hearing this account, King Roderick was much disheartened, and he trembled with fear. However, the two armies engaged near the lake or gulf. They fought resolutely on both sides till the right and left wings of Roderick's army, under the commands of the sons of Witiza, gave way. The center, in which Roderick was, still held firm for a while, and made the fate of the battle uncertain for some time. They fled at last, and Roderick before them. From that moment the rout became general, and the Muslims followed with ardor the pursuit of the scattered bands, inflicting death wherever they went. Roderick disappeared in the midst of the battle, and no certain intelligence was afterward received of him. It is true that some Muslims found his favorite steed, a milk-white horse, bearing a saddle of gold, sparkling with rubies, plunged in the mud of the river, 
as also one of his sandals, adorned with rubies and emeralds, but the other was never found. Nor was Roderick, although diligently searched for, ever discovered either dead or alive, a circumstance which led the Muslims to believe that he perished in the stream, the weight of his armor preventing him from struggling against the current, and he was drowned. But God only knows what became of him. According to Arazi, the contest began on Sunday, two days before the end of Ramadan, and continued till Sunday, the fifth of Shawal, namely eight whole days, at the end of which God Almighty was pleased to put the idolaters to flight and grant the victory to the Muslims. And he adds that so great was the number of the Goths who perished in the battle, that for a long time after the victory the bones of the slain were to be seen covering the field of action. They say also that the spoil found by the Muslims in the camp of the Christians surpassed all computation, for the princes and great men of the Goths who had fallen were distinguished by the rings of gold they wore on their fingers, those of an inferior class by similar ornaments of silver, while those of the slaves were made of brass. Tarek collected all the spoil and divided it into five shares or portions, when after deducting one-fifth, he distributed the rest among nine thousand Muslims, besides the slaves and followers. When the people on the other side of the straits heard of this success of Tarek and of the plentiful spoils he had acquired, they flocked to him from all quarters and crossed the sea on every vessel or bark they could lay hold of. Tarek's army being so considerably reinforced, the Christians were obliged to shut themselves up in their castles and fortresses, and quitting the flat country, betake themselves to their mountains. End of section 29. Recording by Beth Blakely.